You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. I, uh, I'm excited today because I get to use one of my favorite words in the English language. We are on the penultimate sermon for our series. Penultimate meaning the second to last of our series. Uh, For those of you who have been with us uh, from the beginning of studying the gospel of Mark, um, I I, uh, appreciate you honing in for this whole time. I'll I'll see if we can put a certificate together for you, and we'll we'll hand those out. We'll have a big ceremony next week. Um, But excited to be kind of coming to the conclusion of the gospel of Mark, which really was written as a call to the early church, a call to disciples. When, when the church was being challenged in the first century, being push, pushing up against the demand of Rome to, to not truly live out their faith, to, to come up against challenges where perhaps, much like we do today, maybe some of you have grown up in a church that said, you know what, follow Jesus and it's going to be clowns and balloons and it's going to be a good time. To, to point out, you know, Jesus never said that, and that is something that the West created. That has never been uh, the gospel that Jesus offered. In fact, Jesus promised the exact opposite. If you follow me, you will follow the same path as I did, and it actually will mean suffering. And we see many people, some of you have maybe walked through it. Many of our, our friends who we've grown up with, maybe in the faith, have walked through what we call deconstruction, because what they were promised is not what they were given. And Mark, as we've looked many times, and actually throughout the the different Gospels, many times is challenging uh, believers to the fact that to follow Jesus is going to mean suffering. And so today we come to the suffering of Christ. We come to his trial. We come to uh, his rejection by those who said they were his friends. We come to the rejection of religious believers, of the government, and ultimately his crucifixion. And so this morning, and it's not just because I was jet lagged, but this morning I'm going to read a big chunk of scripture (laughs) to start us off. And the reason I want to do that is often we'll read a quick uh, snippet and then we'll kind of jump to the lesson. What I really want us to do is much of what the New Testament was, we were, how we were meant to consume the New Testament was to sit in the story and listen. And so I am going to be reading this morning from the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to be reading from chapter 4, verses 53 through to uh, 65. And then I'm going to pick it up at chapter 15 all the way through to 39. So, as comfortable as you are to stand... (laughs) because it's going to be long, I will invite you to stand out of respect for God's word, if you are able. This is the word of God to us this morning. Rather than us just imagine the words passing us by, I want you to imagine the noises. I want you to imagine the smells. I want you to imagine the feelings in this story. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, this is the, 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 law, the keepers of the law, 
with the Jewish religion, were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave their false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even their, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? And all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and they said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Chapter 15. Very, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate was the Roman leader of the area. The one in charge of the province. You have said, uh, sorry, he said, are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. Basically, that means what you've just said is true. You are speaking truth. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate released Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one that you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, if that's not a testimony to politics, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe around him. They twisted together a crown of thorns, and they set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff. They spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took, him off, they took off the purple robe, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him down, led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander, and Rufus was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. 
It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Come down from the cross. Or sorry, I skipped. So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified, were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon... Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. The word of God to us this morning. Jesus, open our hearts and minds to what you would want to teach us from this narrative of your humility, this narrative of your suffering, this narrative of your trial, injustice against you and your death. We thank you for the promise that through your death we may have life. And so we look at your death today and pray that we would have a deeper understanding of what it means to call you the suffering lamb, to call you our Savior. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You guys can take a seat. It's an interesting ending to that entire story. For the centurion to take this in and say, surely this was the Son of God. What would your response be? If you were to look at the trial, if you were to look at uh, those who gave up on Jesus. Would it be, surely this was the Son of God? Look at the way he was beaten. Look at the way he was tortured. Surely this is the Son of God. Or would your response perhaps be something more along the lines of, well, there goes another religious leader. There goes someone else with a bunch of promises who couldn't pull anything off. There goes someone else that the Romans were easily able to, to snuff out. There goes more misplaced hope in a world full of misplaced hope. For many of us, we're not comfortable with this story. That's why Christians love to jump straight to the resurrection. We just go, yeah, the resurrection, but he burst out of the tomb with, with power. We, Jesus put everything right when he was, he was vindicated. He was proven by God, declared by God to have power over death and to be seen as righteous in God's eyes. But the gospel writers seem in every gospel to think that this narrative is very important. That not only Jesus' death, but also his experience leading to death was very important. And in fact, says something about Christ's divinity. We like to skip over it. The narrative of scripture does not. There's no quick skipping over his suffering. 
So how can we read what we see today and come to the kind of conclusion that the centurion does to say, surely this was the Son of God? Even, even here in, in Mark, we, who, who is probably most likely recording the words of, of Peter, who was a follower of Jesus, it's strange to have the entire thing capped by a Gentile declaring, this must be the Son of God. Surely he was the son of God. And why surely? Why not? Wow, this gives me something to think about. Why not? I need to ponder this a little more. No, no, the centurion is convicted, is convinced. Surely this was the son of God. What gives him that kind of confidence to make that kind of statement? It's almost as if the centurion is saying to Mark and then saying to the early readers and saying you and I, to you and I today, are you guys seeing this? Make sure you guys get the significance of what has just happened. What brings him to that conclusion? Because I'll tell you, the evidence against Jesus being the Son of God seems pretty strong in what we just read. The fact that he's being teased, he's being mocked, he's being beaten up, being uh, worshipped in a mocking fashion, and does nothing about it, seems to have no power over it. Those seem to be strong evidence that he's not the son of God. If he was the son of God, how could he allow any of this, how could he allow this blasphemy to happen? Why not prove himself? So what did the centurion see in Jesus? I think he sees a few things. I mean, this man had no doubt witnessed many executions. He'd seen many people on trial, probably many people in false trials, like what goes on here, many lies thrown at them. Probably, he's probably walked through this entire thing, seen the arrest, seen the trial, crucifixion. He's seen that of many people. But Jesus stirred something in this, this Roman centurion, probably a war-weathered, tatted-out centurion, The death of Jesus has done something in him. And I think we see a few things. One, uh, he probably sees Jesus' response to everything that's happening to him. There's a a response of Jesus to to what we learned uh, two weeks ago, as as Ryan shared with you guys, in Judas' response to him. The way way Jesus responds to his close friend giving him up, to to Peter abandoning him, all the while being silent. Jesus never begs for mercy. He never never calls down curses, as many were known to do from, from crosses, even as they were being uh, whipped to call down curses from heaven. Jesus never does any of that. And if anyone had power to do it, it was Jesus. As one old uh, hymn says, he could have called 10,000 angels, but he chose not to. It's a very different response than, than the centurion is used to. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says that Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now that, that ancient poem about Jesus is, is, is kind of hyperbolic. We know that Jesus said some things, especially from the cross. He, he quotes the Psalms many times. But the point is, he never fought to defend himself. When, when they mocked him, he never fought back to say, how dare you? You do not know who I am. 
We know throughout his walk to the cross, Jesus, he, he did speak several times. But it, when, he, when he quotes scripture on the cross, he, he's reminding himself of the story that he's in, the mission that he is on because of his father. But so there's an interesting response from Jesus. There's also a dignity that Jesus seems to have that seems to fuel the way he responds. In the, in the midst of a false trial made up, made of, of, made up of fake news, <laughs> made up of false witnesses bringing about a false verdict, spreading lies through Jerusalem like social media, but he never pushes back. He never fights back on it. It's not true. He just lets it come. He never pleads his case. He allows the crowd to get stirred, stirred into a frenzy based on lies and injustice. We also see not only his, his response, we see his dignity, we also see mercy. Mercy in the midst of all of this. Rather than beg, rather than call down curses, Jesus does the opposite. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Do we have that up there? Jesus said, Father, this is while he's on the cross, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. While he's looking down from the cross, as in a mocking fashion, they're gambling over his clothes. At that moment, man, I have a hard enough time when I go home and try to calm myself down to offer out forgiveness. But to be looking at the people as they mock me and offer forgiveness in that moment, that is a level of mercy. <laughs> I'm working on it, okay? Even as he is mocked, as he looks down on the cross and witnesses probably this centurion and his friends gamble over his clothes. Jesus' concern was with their forgiveness, that they would find life. It was that the work of his death would be applied to even those who laughed at him and shamed him in the midst of torture. That's a slightly different view than I have often of those who laugh at me, who throw injustice my way, who mock me, condemn me, dismiss me. But there's one other thing that the centurion definitely noticed and we see this in, in Matthew 27. But the centurion would have noticed the response of creation itself to the event of Christ's crucifixion. Matthew 27, verse 54, says this. It says, When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. When the entire creation is moving beneath your feet... <laughs> At, at, at someone's crucifixion, you're probably going to pay attention. The sun went dark. The earth was moving beneath their feet. The, the centurion had been close to torture many times, but it was never accompanied with all of this, with all these theatrics, with all this drama. And all of a sudden, it ends with Jesus dying. And as the text says that we read today, the temple curtain, the, the center of Jewish worship, the, the curtain, uh, the, the temple curtain, ripping, tearing from the top to the bottom, opening up the space of the common area and the space that only the high priest could go, signifying that Jesus' death did something to religion itself. Religion forever would look different. Religion now looked drastically different because everything that, that religion does to keep you separated from the Most High God has been torn open to allow you in. And many of you have heard it pointed out many times. It is not torn from the bottom up. It is as if God took the curtain from the top and ripped it open for us to enter. Amen. 
And when Jesus yelled from the cross, it is finished. It is as if all the creation went, <sighs> and it stopped. And all of these things, all of these same things seemed to work together for, for, for the centurion to state what no Jew throughout the gospel of Mark has yet proclaimed. He is the first person outside of God himself to state this is the Son of God. This centurion at the foot of the cross after watching the suffering of Jesus and the death of Jesus is the first convert to the faith. Saved by the power, not yet of the resurrection, but of the cross. He hasn't seen the resurrection. He's only seen the cross. The cross, when taken in, the, the silence, the dignity, the mercy of Jesus, when taken in, it can convert even the hard-hearted, callous, proud, and weathered. And we've all been hard-hearted, callous, proud, and weathered. You could, yeah, depends on what time of the week you get me, but I hit most of those. Guys, no matter what kind of pride we might walk with, maybe what pride that we've entered with here, the answer to it is the humility and the dignity and the mercy of Christ. The answer to self-seeking and selfishness to, is the humility of Christ. As one author puts it, he says this, he says, the grounds, do we have it up there? The ground is always level at the foot of the cross. The foot of the cross is where paupers and princes, religionists and pagans, well-knowns and unknowns, and yes, generals and centurions find level ground to kneel and embrace the Christ who died for them and for us. The centurion, no doubt, went to tell other people about what he witnessed. Maybe Mark interviewed him. <laughs> Maybe, maybe Luke and, and Matthew met with him and they heard his story from his angle. And he explained why for him there was no doubt that Jesus was the son of the living God. But I'll tell you, to make such a confession in the first century in a Roman province is to say no to the gods of Rome, including Caesar as a god, and to step into a new story. And the invitation of this soldier is for you and I to do the same. And we say, well, we weren't there. We didn't see it. It's the point of the Gospels. That's why we have the Gospels. That's why we have the Gospel accounts. There's, it's the very reason Mark interviewed people like the centurion, why, why Luke went to great detail to figure out the stories of, of, of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection it was so that you and I could sit here and we can hear this story and we also can be like the centurion and say, surely this is the Son of God and my life has forever changed. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10, verse 17, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. That's what the Gospels are. They're the word about Christ. And they are gifted to you and I. Because those who witnessed it firsthand said, This must be given to everybody. Everybody must hear this story. So that you and I and all those who hear the Gospel, like the centurion, can go, Surely this is the Son of the living God. You and I are invited into the faith. You and I are invited to make the same proclamation as the centurion. Whether we're hardened by life, some of us are. Whether we've been weathered and calloused by life, some of us are. Whether we've been disillusioned, 
by politics and ideology and relationships, which many of us are, the invitation is the same. Maybe we've been like the centurion. We've actually been a, a tool of evil in our lives. doesn't matter. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The confession is the same. It doesn't matter where you come from. The confession is surely this is the son of the living God and my life is forever changed. The story that seemed to be only about weakness, something that the world would shun because it's about weakness, actually brings new life. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians 1.18, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross, not the resurrection yet. The cross is showing us the power of God, the humble, dignified power of God. In verse 23 and 24 of the same chapter, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. The Messiah can't be crucified. Foolishness to the Gentiles. To be humbled, there can be no power in that. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Again, in Colossians 1, 21 to 22, Paul writes this. He says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. I think that would have applied to the centurion. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Notice it's not only in Jesus' resurrection where we realize and we understand what Jesus has done for us. Paul says there's power in his death to give you new life. But I would say how much more in his life and how much more in his resurrection. I would, I would love, I would love to, to be able to go, man, I really spit there. I would love to go back, oh, I'm just like, mm, COVID. Um, and I would love to go to Centurion as he looks up at the cross and he goes, surely this was the son of the living God. And you and tap him on the shoulder, go, you just wait. <laughs> you think you saw something there. You just wait until you see him burst out of the grave. And I don't know whether the Centurion was there that morning when he woke up and the, the, the rock had been rolled away. But to say to the centurion, you haven't seen, you ain't seen nothing yet. So how do we respond? How do we respond, not only on this side of the cross, but on this side of the resurrection as well? I think we learn something from the centurion. We also learn something from, from Christ. First, of how, we, how do we respond in our life? How should we respond in our life? The invita invitation, I think, of the centurion is to take... The, the story of Christ and make it our declaration. I would imagine for the centurion, it cost him everything to make that declaration. Comfortable job, power over other people, to walk through the streets and have people be afraid of you, security, and to say, surely this was the son of the living God, was to say no to all of that, to give all of that up. If there's anyone who knew what a declaration of Jesus as the Son of God could mean, it was the Roman centurion, because it was treason to make that declaration. It was treason to make that declaration about anyone but Caesar himself. But there's something too compelling for him in the death of Jesus that made it worth the sacrifice, made it worth the danger and the challenge of declaring Jesus the Son of God of the living God. So that's the invitation this morning is to look at the cross. 
What, what must it have felt like the, for the centurion to realize that this death of a Jewish teacher had impacted his own life? That, that his life would forever be changed because of the death that he helped carry out? What I have come to find, sadly for many, is that more than, than, than sin in our life, it is often shame that keeps us from coming to Jesus. By that, I mean that we, we tend to keep our distance from Jesus because we have a sense of our shame and we believe that, that the love of God simply cannot overlook the sin in our lives. And I have seen people who had fallen into addiction and gone further and further down that road because they, they've fallen through it again. And what keeps them coming back is the shame of having to, to confess and say, I've done this. And as I've reminded this church many times, there is, there's a welcoming sense to repentance when it comes to God the Father. And, and we, we see that throughout the gospel. But I, I always re remind us of, of the, the, pro, the father of the prodigal son. That is what is always on the other side of confession. That is what is always on the other side of repentance is a father who runs to you to embrace you, to fix and bring peace and bring unity and reconciliation in your relationship. Shame should never keep us from coming to God the Father. Jesus died to abolish that, to tear that veil. So shame needs no longer attach itself to us. So if you come and you've had pride, if you've come and you've found that you've been a tool of evil in your life, in relationships, you've, you've, you've loved seeing fear in people's eyes. Whether you've shamed people, whatever you have that's attached to you that nobody else can see, the cross declares. You can throw it aside. You can declare he's the son of the living God. And on the other side of that, of that confession, is, a, is not a God who wants to go, hey, remember that? Remember that thing you did? That, no, all he wants is his tears to run down his beard and all, all over his clothes. He just wants to weep and embrace you. That's what the gospel is declaring. That's what the tearing of the temple curtain declares. So however you've come today, do not let shame get in the way of God's embrace. It's a lie. The second way I think, the second thing I think we're invited to this morning in this text is a response in how we suffer. A response in how we suffer. And the suffering in G of Jesus has implications for how you and I ought to walk through suffering. It, it's been the witness through the history of the church that Christians can and have suffered differently because of the suffering that Jesus has shown them and walked through for us. The martyrs of the church have been seen as merciful and dignified and, and humble and forgiving, ready to relinquish their lives for God's purpose in life and in death because Jesus has gone before them. Because Jesus has been a model of what it means to suffer. This was what brought many to faith throughout the last 2,000 years, was witnessing how Christians suffer. I tell you, I'm glad Nobody sees the way I suffer. Because I'm quick to complain. I'm quick to talk about injustice against my life. How 
How do our neighbors witness us when we, when we suffer injustice or difficulty in life? Would they say, surely this person knows the son of the living God? <laughs> or would they just find another person who sounds like everybody else that's on social media and yelling about everything and upset? Or would they see something in us and go, surely something is different about this person? <laughs> There's chaos all around them, but they seem to have a hope. They seem to even have a joy. They have a peace about them. Even though this person confesses something that seems like foolishness to, their wor- to the world and to their neighbors around them, their life seems to manifest a solidity and a, a truthfulness that can't be explained outside of the fact the only thing that seems different about them is that they claim to know the Son of the Living God. My, my wife was in a play, some of you, you came to see it a while back, called Steel Magnolias, which takes place in, in the southern states. And kind of one of the ongoing jokes throughout the, the play is the idea that there's kind of these weird Christians that are in their community. And there's kind of, so it's kind of this ongoing that, that Christians are kind of, it's not, it's not blatant, but it's kind of in the background, this kind of dismissal of Christian, the Christian faith is kind of foolish and innocent and petty and sometimes a little crazy. But in the middle of this critique, there's this, this one scene, this simple statement that all, although these Christians seem foolish and crazy sometimes and a little kooky, they seem to have a peace and a kindness that can't be explained. I remember watching the play and just kind of going, I I hope that's the case. That people would look and they go, yeah, Christians are a little foolish. I don't really get that part. I don't get that part. But they really seem to have something. (laughs) In the midst of all this chaos, in political turmoil, ideological turmoil, that they seem to have a peace. Is that true of me all the time? No. (laughs) And the only way it becomes more and more true is the more I I tether myself to Christ, the more I, I find myself in this story. But as we witness the the silent confidence of Jesus, confident not in his deliverance from the suffering that he's going to walk through, but silence in the fact that he is doing the work that God has called him to, we, we see not only the way of our salvation, but the way we're called to live out our salvation. Dignity, humility, mercy, because this, this son of God rose from the grave, proving that suffering does not have the last word. We can suffer because we know that suffering will not have the last word. When we, when we live in suffering with dignity, humility, and mercy, mercy we declare that we believe that, that when he suffered, it gave meaning to our suffering. It brought purpose to our suffering so that the worst thing to happen will not be the last thing to happen to us. Because he rose as he promised he would. And because of that, we can, we can hold him to every other promise that he ever made. Because of the resurrection, we can hold Jesus to every other promise he ever made. Every one that he made, including ones that he will return to put suffering finally to an end. To end pain. To end death. To end all mourning. That is our story because of the death of Christ. His death in place of ours. And that is a story that can be hard to keep a grasp on in a very loud, very angry, very chaotic world. That's why meeting together on a Sunday is not about checking off the list. It's, it's to live a vital, flourishing Christian life. It's, it's meant to be where we remind ourselves that this, which seems foolishness to the world, is our life source. 
is what gives us hope, is what gives us dignity, is what gives us strength. And so as Christ follows, it's important for us to return ourselves over and over and over to this story. And that's what we do when we take communion. When we take communion, uh, Martin Luther was famous for saying, when he was critiqued for, for spending three hours in prayer every day, they said, how can you do that? You're so busy. He said, I'm so busy, I have to pray three hours every morning. <laughs> I wonder how my busyness and the craziness of my schedule would be looked at a little bit differently if I started my day with three hours of prayer every morning. Sorry to let you down, by the way. I'm not doing three hours of prayer every morning. I'll try it this week. We'll see. You do? So I said, I do. Well, all right. We'll get you preaching next week. That'd be great. Uh, guys, I'm going to invite you to, to take your, um, your communion cups. And um, I, I, I had hoped to have things in line for us to do communion a little bit more traditionally, but we're going we're gonna to aim to do that next month. But what I'm going to ask you to do, for, and, and some of you know why already, but if you're new to this, I'm going to ask you to take the thin film off the, the, the top part, and then there's a thicker one that removes it from the juice itself. And once you've done that, you can hold the, the bread-like substance in one hand. Yeah, sorry, if you need communion, put your hand up, and uh, my man Andrew will get, get you on. I think, we're gonna, I think we're good. But we're reminded, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Paul was not at the first communion, but he tells us, about it. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, and we walked through this text in Mark about a month ago, he took bread and when he'd given thanks to it, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we eat bread together, we're reminding ourselves of the death of Christ, of the fact that like a lamb to the slaughter, he did not jump up to defend himself. He did not call down 10,000 angels because he saw you as the prize on the other side of the cross. Scripture says, for the joy that was set before him. Well, the joy set before him wasn't heaven. He was already there. He gave up that for a time. The joy set before Jesus was that you and I would be welcomed into his family. So when we take and eat the bread, we're reminded that Jesus was willing to give up his body to welcome you and I into his family and in relationship with him. So we eat this bread remembering that. Let's eat together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the new agreement, the new commitment I have with you in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Not his resurrection, but that's implied, isn't it? What a beautiful statement. I point this out each time we do communion. What an amazing sentence. We proclaim his death until he comes. That's a surprise ending. That's the beautiful surprise ending of, of the history of all of humanity because of the cross, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as we drink, we remember that Jesus gave his full life. The, the life of the body is in the blood, Scripture says. He gave his whole life by the spilling of his blood so, so that he would come again. So that, and when he came again, he would have 
a kingdom of his own and that you and I would be welcomed into that kingdom and that family. And so we drink and we remember that. Let's drink. God, you are good and your love endures forever. And there is no greater display of your love. There's no greater display of your power and your, your willingness to give up everything to redeem us and welcome us into relationship with you. And as we look at the cross, how could we ever say you take our suffering lightly? As we take the bread and we drink the cup, how could we ever say God does not see? We may not understand all the suffering we go through, but you are not a God who stands so far off that he's ignorant of what we walk through. You understand our temptations and you understand our suffering. So may we be very quick to grab onto you more fully when we suffer. Not to, not to cut ourselves off from you, for there is no life anywhere else. Only you have the words of life. And so today, as we reflected on the cross, may we be reminded of your love. May we be reminded of your power. May we be reminded that you will, will go to the greatest extents to bring us in and welcome us. And God, some of us are suffering right now. Some of us are suffering in relationships. Some of us have an unnamed suffering. We don't even know, understand why this cloud is over us. And you're, you maybe are not going to give us all the answers to that, but please be close to us. Please remind us that you are near. Remind us of this great reversal that because you gave up all things, you can give us all things. Because you stepped away from relationship with the Father for a second, we can have relationship with you and with the Father. So, Father, for those who walk in here suffering physically, emotionally, or spiritually, be close, I pray. May we declare with our mouths and with our lives, surely you are the Son of the living God. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.